Ajahn Chah encouraged us to use the lifestyle in the monastery to help bring up mindfulness. One of the teachings he, or instructions he gave, when staying in the monastery, when you begin your day, first thing in the morning, when you wake up, bow three times to Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. You'll notice in the monastery we bow often. See, when we enter the Dhamma hall, or when we leave. He said, when you're staying in your room or your kuti or your tent, and when you leave your dwelling place, bow first. When you return, bow again. So some people encounter this, they think, must be very attached to bowing. But the purpose was to give us a skillful means to help us compose the mind, bring it back to the present moment. When you bow, you necessarily have to stop. You lower yourself, you think of the Buddha the Dhamma, the Sangha. You remind yourself of where you are, what you're doing, <clears throat> that you're practicing Dhamma. You remind yourself that this is a monastery which has come about through the goodness of the Buddha and the teachings, and so on. So if from time to time through your day you stop and bow. Each time you have that opportunity to re-establish mindful awareness and think of something very wholesome. <clears throat> and then to use the practices, the routines of the monastery to bring up skillful states of mind. So in the monastery, they traditionally in Ajahn Chah's monastery, we practice uh, outward displays of respect for each other, for the teacher, for senior monks, but also for each other. In the old days when you walked around the monastery, if you walked past somebody else's dwelling place, if you're walking with a friend and having a conversation, <coughs> you'd stop speaking or lower your voice so as not to disturb the person in that dwelling place because they might be meditating, both out of respect 
and just practical support for their meditation. So you're always mindful of where you were, what you're doing. If you're near a senior monk who's teaching, then you'd always be quiet. When taking food, we always, in the monastery we always sort of go in a line. You, you always have the senior monks and then the junior monks and then the Anagarikas and then the lay visitors. You go on in a line just as a, again a way to promote harmony and mindfulness, composure as you take your food. It's not just say a free-for-all where you're competing. Sometimes we do uh, forget ourselves, so we, we lose our mindfulness. These practices help bring mindfulness, awareness back to the present moment, where we are, what are we doing. Some monasteries you stay in, I remember one time there's a very old monk who would take his food very slowly. Then uh, the next monk down the line was much younger, very fast. He's always getting frustrated with the slowness of the old monk. So sometimes he'd forget himself and rush past. Then everyone else would look and say, mm, how disrespectful. And the monk would feel a little bit guilty and then he'd remember to go slow again. Just these small practices in a monastery help to show us our own, <clears throat> our own mind, our own desires and help to give us skillful means how to deal with them by becoming aware of our thoughts, our intentions, our motivations, our actions. Always the teaching was to establish mindfulness in the present moment, with a standing, walking, sitting, lying down. And to keep <clears throat> maintaining mindfulness, whatever the experiences we're going through, pleasant, unpleasant. You get things to your liking, things not to your liking. Always just to establish mindfulness. We say establish mindfulness of the sense contact. <clears throat> so you see something or hear something taste something, touch something, or you just have an internal memory or thought come up to maintain an even mindfulness, whatever, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Not, not to let the mind get caught into moods and reactions stirred up, but just to know things the way they are, a pleasant feeling or an unpleasant feeling, a good experience, a bad experience, 
just to know things the way they are without creating a lot in the mind, without identifying so strongly one makes a lot in the mind, gives a lot of importance to the experience, being pleasant, unpleasant. Just knowing this is the way things are. You'll see sometimes getting up in the morning, very energetic, enthusiastic. Then another day maybe feeling tired, can't be bothered or just want to sleep. But to try to use the routine of the retreat or of the monastery as a structure and just to practice mindfulness, just to know, oh, today I feel enthusiastic, I've got a lot of faith, want to keep practicing. Or another day I feel very bored or distracted and don't want to do it. But to keep practicing anyway and just to be mindful of the mood and the mood changes. Not to grasp at them so much. And then to find supports for the practice that will help to be more at ease as we practice. Ajahn Chah encouraged to practice a lot of contentment. Say contentment with our material things. <clears throat> Say a monk has to practice fewness of wishes. We learn not to be always seeking more, wanting more, better, the best. Learn to be content with what we've got. Say as a Buddhist monk we have no choice because we're beggars, we don't have money and we depend on charity, people's goodwill. And everybody coming into a monastery has to practice in that way because it's not, a, it's not your own home, it's not a commercial place. You have to practice contentment with what's available, in the accommodation, the food, the furnishings, the facilities. And that takes effort, it takes mindfulness again. You catch, catch yourself if you find, <clears throat> you find the mind complaining or dissatisfied with what's available. You have to remind yourself, mm, this is learning to be content, learning fewness of wishes. And you find when you practice that, you get into that habit it's very easy for the mind to calm down in meditation because it's not caught into a lot of dissatisfaction or complaining or comparing. Ajahn Chah always said if you practice fewness of wishes, it means you learn to get by with just enough, rather than always seeking a little bit more. So if it's food, you get by, just find the right amount of food for you, just make sure you just have just enough.
clothing, accommodation, all these things. Try and find the, the amount that's just enough. Then you're very independent from your own desires. You're not always planning and scheming and thinking how you can improve things. But you're just being mindful of the present moment and the way things are. So it's an attitude that one has to keep developing. And it's not necessarily in line with the world when we're out in the world, the culture we live in, it's always encouraging us to feel that it's not good enough and we have not enough. We need more, we need better. And so we get very agitated and stirred up by that. We get caught out by advertising and shop displays and information coming our way through the internet or TV. And the mind tends to feel that it always needs something more to be happy. So we often live with a lot of discontent in our workplace, in our homes and so on. But in our monastery we can set aside much of that. And you learn to develop the sense that it's good enough or it's just enough. Of course, in a monastery you can always, can improve things, make the facilities better. And maybe it happens over time. But in terms of personal meditation, that's not the way to go, it's always thinking how to make it better or get more. Sometimes in the monastery, you know, not so much here, because we're well supported, but in Thailand, when I was a young monk, some of the monasteries were very, very poor. And the amount of food offered every day was very little. And we had to split it up between maybe, there's one monastery I was in, five monks and novices and three nuns. So there's eight people. We had to learn to divide all the food fairly because there was so little. So you just make, make do with what you got, what you get. So sometimes you get two bananas, so cut each banana into four pieces, make sure everyone gets, gets a piece. One time I was at the end of the line of about six monks and they cut up a watermelon. When it got down to the end of the line, there was only the rind left. So I could just uh, poke around on watermelon rind for a day. Sometimes it's like that, but rather than complaining, thinking a lot about it, just accepting this is the way it is. And if you get into that habit, practicing contentment, appreciation of what you've got, finding the right amount, it makes you very free 
They're very easy, easy to look after. You can go anywhere and you can be quite at ease. You know how to get by with little, not to make a big fuss in your mind. And this is very supportive to meditation. Ajahn Chah used to say, when, when you become a more senior monk, your mind can go in two ways. Say, if you've been through a bit of difficulty when you're a junior monk, say when you get to the top of the line and there's a lot of food available because you're the first in line, your mind goes in one of two ways. Either you think, oh, when I was a junior monk, I never got any of the good food. Now I'm really going to indulge because I'm at the top of the line. Or perhaps a wiser attitude, you think, I'm at the top of the line, better make sure the ones at the bottom end of the line get a fair share, because I know how hard it is at the bottom end of the line. So when you practice contentment and fewness of wishes over many years, it makes you free of a lot of desires and greed and makes, naturally brings up a sense of compassion and wisdom in the mind. But whatever the conditions, whether there's too much, too little, just the right amount, it's always a practice of bringing the mind back to the present moment, establishing mindfulness. And this word we say equanimity, upeka learning to be restrained, composed, whatever the situation. It's cold, it's hot, there's a lot of food, a little food. You're tired, you're not tired. And developing equanimity, establish mindfulness, contemplate the Dhamma and bring the mind to equanimity. And Jan Charles said, this is the real middle way that the Buddha taught, learning to be mindful and restrained in all situations. Whatever the people are like around you, whatever the environment is like, whatever the situation, to keep bringing up mindfulness and keeping the mind balanced with equanimity. When it loses balance, then it falls into one of the extremes either indulgence, seeking more, more pleasure and attaching to that, or aversion, attaching to aversion, dissatisfaction, discontent, dislike. And the mind, when we lose our mindfulness, it's, it's going in one of these two directions. So he said it's a bit like the clapper of a bell and liking and indulgence hits you on one side, then aversion, dissatisfaction hits you on the other side, You're constantly hitting one side or the other. When you practice mindfulness, it brings the mind into the middle, the place of peace, where it's knowing things the way they are, but not getting caught into attraction or aversion seeing that both of those are cause of suffering. So the monastic routine, the practices we do support this. 
sitting meditation, walking meditation, eating, cleaning up, chanting, bowing, listening to Dhamma. All of it is an opportunity for developing mindfulness, uh, composure, restraint. Sometimes the philosophy of Buddhism can confuse us. You know, we hear the Dhamma talks. Everything is anatta, not self. Form is not self. Feeling is not self. Perception, not self. Thought formation is not self. Sense consciousness is not self. Everything's not self, so then probably it doesn't matter anyway. Nothing matters don't have to do anything. So doesn't mean much at all because it's not self. It's all impermanent, not self. But these are skillful reflections the Buddha, Ajahn Chah and our teachers gave to help sort the mind out, to sort out delusion and attachment and free our mind from delusion and attachment. They're not to um, bring us to more confusion or despair. So they're ways of investigating our experience. So one teacher says, when you contemplate not self, this is always insight that's arising internally when the mind is peaceful and just, you just investigate this body and mind. You're seeing how it's impermanent and not to be grasped at as self because that would lead to suffering. But this is an internal mental reflection. But externally you have to act as though there is a self because there is still a self, there's a person there. And this person makes karma, good and bad karma. This person can act skillfully or unskillfully. They can do things that bring them happiness and happiness to others. Or they can cause a lot of suffering for themselves and others. So that's why we practice precepts and mindfulness. Because on the external level we still have to talk about a self and act with wisdom, use this self and the idea of self wisely. We have to train ourselves not to you know, harm ourselves or others in our actions and our speech. So we have to reflect on ourselves, with this person, our intentions and our speech, our actions. We have to review them and reflect on them, become more aware, more sensitive to how we're living in the world how we treat the world, how we treat other people. Look at the results of our behavior. So on that sense, there is a self. There's a self that needs to practice and train. We have to restrain our more harmful tendencies that cause problems for ourselves and others. We have to develop more generosity and kindness mutual respect and cooperation and so on. 
So on that level there is a self and we train that self. But all of this helps the mind to be more at peace and ease within itself. And when we come to meditate, we calm the mind more by using meditation object. Mindfulness directed to the breath. And we gradually let go of everything as we're meditating. So just mindfully aware of one breath in, one breath out. Of course, at that point, the sense of self that we normally identify with disappears. If you're just being fully mindful of one breath in, one breath out, then all the thinking and the, the sense of self, self-identification with this body and feelings and emotions all settles down, calms down, and it becomes very refined. Our awareness of self is just confined to a one breath in, one breath out. Still, you could have a subtle sense of self there, which you might investigate and look at. You might have some pleasure and happiness arise as your mind settles down and just becomes calm, focused on the breath. You might get a subtle sense of self, feeling very good about that. Oh, my meditation is going well, I'm so peaceful. So that subtle sense of self re-emerges. But on this deeper, more profound level, we can see, well, even this sense of self can be cause of suffering. And when we feel good about meditation, we tend to attach if we're not aware of what we're doing. Then maybe another time we meditate, it doesn't feel so good. And we get disappointed. We say, oh, it's not as good as last time. What happened? Or sometimes the sense of self gets a bit inflated when we meditate. We get very peaceful and we think, oh, I'm really good. Then we want to go and tell everybody else about it. So more of a sense of self. So it's on this subtle level we're learning to let go of self because it just causes us so much suffering. As, as long as we attach to our experience as self, we'll end up suffering, confused, comparing with others, comparing with our own ideals about how we should be or how things should be. Even in meditation it can be like this. Wherever the self identifies with experience, we try to grasp or own our experience, we end up in problems, suffering. So Ajahn Chah encouraged us to bring in the same technique that we use in any other aspect of our practice. Just establish mindfulness. Know the experience for what it is. If it's a pleasant feeling, you just know it. There's a pleasant feeling arising. But don't grasp at it as self. We just know it, pleasant feeling arising, passing away. Unpleasant feeling arising, you know that, but don't grasp at it as self. Once you grasp at it as self, you'll react with pleasure or aversion. Unpleasant feelings we want to push away and get rid of. 
And sometimes that's not possible. So sometimes we have to just be very patient and put up with them and reflect on this letting go of self so we can be at peace with the unpleasant feeling. Pleasant feelings we want to grasp at and hold on to, make them last as long as possible, keep them coming. That's not always possible. Pleasant feelings come and go. So as long as we know that, that they're not self, we can be at peace. If they come, we're having a pleasant experience, good. If it's gone, it's gone. We have to accept that, it's impermanent. This is the subtle reflection we gain as we meditate. The mindfulness of feeling. Just knowing feeling as a conditioned thing, an experience that arises into consciousness according to its own set of conditions then passes away. If we don't reflect on this, then we're forever chasing the pleasant and running away from the unpleasant. And the mind becomes very stressed like that, a lot of suffering. When we establish mindfulness, the mind goes to equanimity, it becomes very calm, balanced. It's able to contemplate the feeling for what it is. It's just a feeling arising, passing away. It is what it is. We say feel, seeing the feeling or knowing the feeling within the feeling. It means just knowing it with awareness, without attaching to it or grasping at it. When you understand this in yourself, you can also understand this in others. When the Buddha said no feelings that are internal or external, you can contemplate feelings arising in other people. If someone else is experiencing a painful feeling, well, if you're aware of that, you can be compassionate, sympathize, empathize with them. If they're having some pleasure, you can appreciate that, be happy for them. But still, you know, these are just feelings arising, passing away for others. So whether it's our own feeling, other people's feelings, we know in the end, feeling is, is a part of nature, a phenomena in nature that arises, passes away. That's what it does. It's nothing that we can really grasp at or control or own. If we try to own our feelings, then we get very frustrated in life. Because we never get what we want. And we always want more pleasure, but it doesn't last. And we don't want any unpleasant feelings, and yet we can't stop them coming. And nobody in this world, however rich or powerful, however smart, they can't avoid having some unpleasant feelings in their life. They'll have to experience some unpleasant, some pleasant. That's the nature of human existence. So rather than always reacting with aversion or, or attraction, 
And the Buddha encouraged us to use mindfulness and wisdom and just no feeling is feeling, it's like this. If you think about it in the course of our life, there'll be many experiences which bring many different pleasant and unpleasant feelings to us. The Buddha's description of the eight worldly winds that blow on us, gain and loss, and material gain, material loss. These bring feelings. When we gain something, we get some pleasure. We get our paycheck, or somebody gives us a present, a gift, we win the lottery. We have pleasant feeling arise with that gain. But we lose things, we spend our money, things get lost, broken, stolen. We get painful feeling. And life is like that. Praise and blame. Some people praise us, give us nice words, pleasant words, pleasant feelings. Sometimes those same people give us harsh words, unpleasant words, unpleasant feelings. That's the nature of life. Praise and blame, gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. This body is giving us a mixture. We have some pleasure and then pain. Pain and then pleasure again. Pleasure can turn into pain. You have too much of a good thing, it can become painful. So this is the nature of our existence as human beings. Pleasure and pain, pleasant experience, unpleasant experience. And we'll never be able to totally control our environment and the world to just have pleasure. I mean, normally we think about freedom and happiness in this world as being the happiness or the freedom to maximize pleasure. So we usually associate that with having lots of money and power. But really the, you know, the wise person, they see it, maximum freedom is having maximum mindfulness just to know feeling as feeling, not to be caught up and attached to it with a sense of self. Just to know pleasure as pleasure, pain as pain. With mindfulness and wisdom. So all of the practice we do in the monastery is giving us a chance to look at this, investigate this more closely. You know, train ourselves on the outside, training this this person, this being wisely, correctly, learning to live in a good way with others. But on the inside, when we apply mindfulness to our experience, to reflect that there's actually some all not selves. We cannot own this body and mind and make it be a certain way, control it. We have to accept it goes according to its own nature. So internally we use mindfulness and wisdom to loosen our attachments. 
This is where true freedom arises, true peace arises. Letting go. So if you ever visit a disciple of Ajahn Chah, the one thing you'll probably hear them say is learn how to let go. Is probably his most famous catchword. Let go, let go. If you let go a little, you'll be at peace a little. You let go a lot, you'll be at peace a lot. Have a lot of peace. This is something we're learning inside. We're developing right understanding, right mindfulness. This allows us to let go. Let go of our delusions and our attachments. So I'll leave you with these reflections this morning and carry on sitting until the end of the period.